0: Foot Collectors Club.
1: Big, hairy summer. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests, not this week, about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and our super producer, Riley Bray. Oh... Boys, are Woo! you so excited that Big Harry summer is coming to a climactic end with our history of Bigfoot Part 2? Yes, let's climax with Bigfoot. Oh, it's about time. <laughs> well, not just yet. There's still more parts to come. This isn't the conclusion to the history, but I'll tell you what. Bigfoot shows up in this one. Okay. Okay. This is when we get to Bigfoot. So we're moving along. Part one, no Bigfoot. Part two, Bigfoot. Love it. Okay. You're edging that Bigfoot uh, climax. Yeah, exactly. I'm a Bigfoot Edge Lord. I think you guys
2: have learned this about me by right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the next title track, uh, Bigfoot Edge That's a that's, you know what, that's a, that's there a business card. That's right a, there, a, yeah, like a that. monster <laughs> track right there.
1: Before we get into it, I'm not going to take too much time up here because we got a lot of episode to get to today. This is the deepest of deep dives. I think I've attempted on this series so far. I think we say that every time, but I believe it's true. Reminder that this, yes, this, as you're listening to it, this Thursday, tomorrow night, if you're listening to this on the Wednesday that this episode drops, we are having our live show at 2-Bit Circus in downtown Los Angeles, Thursday, August 24th at 7.30 p.m., doors open at 6 p.m. 2-Bit Circus is like a big... Uh, it's got a big game room, a gigantic floor with with a bar. There's a full menu. There are retro games, there are new games, there's like carnival booth games. It's like Chuck E Cheese for grown-ups. It's kind of cooler than a Dave and Buster's. I think it's a little it's got a little bit more mm-hmm. of an indie vibe to it. You know what I mean? A little bit more of a hipster. Oh, 100%. Yeah, hipster vibe to it. We've been to the venue. It's awesome. There's a theater off to the side where we're going to be doing our Bigfoot birthday bash celebrating Bigfoot's sixty-fifth uh birthday. Guys, this is the end of Big Harry Summer. We're doing it live in person in LA. So you guys gotta come. Tickets are thirty bucks. Oh my gosh, thirty bucks. That's a lot. I understand. But guess what? You get twenty dollars of that back. Uh the show's actually ten dollars. Twenty bucks that goes to a card uh that you get to uh put credits on buy and drinks. Like buy games. Yeah, buy drinks, mm-hmm. buy games, do all that stuff. You'll so you're blow gonna, through that. You're gonna get in no to time. use it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're going to be it's able like, to use that. It's so. like going
0: to a comedy club and there's like a 2 drink minimum, yeah. but a, you can use yeah. that minimum on VR Galaga. or retro video games or beer or food or whatever yes. you want. Giant-sized yes. hungry hungry hippos. Come on. Yes. It's, be there. Th- there it's there money giant, you're going to want to yes. spend
1: there either way. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that. Doors open at six, shows at 7.30, 30 dot com. But Bryce, Michael, Riley, you're saying, I don't live in Los Angeles. I can't get to Los Angeles. Well, guess what? Our dear friends at Popsy Lounge are gonna stream, live stream the show from the what? stage. There's gonna be you're gonna it's like you're gonna be sitting in the audience watching us, uh it's beginning like a at seven thirty. Yeah, seven thirty PM Pacific time. So if you can't be there, go to PopsyLounge.com. And we if you're in LA, you better be there. Don't be like sitting Seriously, in West we're, Hollywood we're and saying, I don't you. want to go downtown. Okay? Come on. You're going to be able to hang out with us after the show. You can live stream in a parking on lot. Much. There's parking. They do. Yeah, that's There's one parking. Of the biggest things. It's not like the downtown, yeah. downtown. It's like downtown adjacent. The arts but district. It's yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's in the, guys, we would never do a show that wasn't in the arts district. Uh, <laughs> Look at these so boys. <laughs> in person tickets, 2bitcircus.com live stream tickets popsylounge.com and from uh 6 p.m pacific time or 6 30 pacific standard time to 7 p.m we're going to be doing our virtual meet and greets all three of us with you talking one on one and fun meet and greet sessions with a vip pass online on, li- on popsylounge.com this all makes sense right go to the links in our show notes you'll yeah. figure it out basically if you're in la be a two-bit circus by no later than 7 30 p.m on thursday august 24th okay yeah. Done. Perfect. Oh, and if that's not enough, we will have special guests. I'll tell you one of them right now. My, Our dear friend, Burl Moseley from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And you're yes. on. I'm not supposed to plug these shows. So uh, I'm not plugging these shows. Hypothetically, he's from TV shows. Not plug- we're still in a strike. I forgot. Hypothet- Hypothetically, he's in TV shows. Burl Moseley
0: from TV. From
1: maybe TV. <laughs> yeah. uh, but definitely from Bigfoot Collectors <laughs> Club. You've seen him over here. You've heard him over here. Yes, uh, friend uh, of the we'll show. We'll be there. And we're going to have some other friends, past guests from the show that will be showing up as well. All right. There's that. Hooray. Come on, guys. Tomorrow night, be there. All right. Come party. The last thing I want to say before we get started, and I know this is unorthodox and we're doing all these plugs, but trust me, we have so much content for you this week. Um, If you're caught up on binging Bigfoot Collectors Club and we mentioned the strike and you're wondering, how do I support these boys during these hard times where no one is paying for them to be artists? Well, guess what? You can support your favorite creators over at patreon.com. Check out our Patreon, BCC The Other Side. Unlock three bonus episodes every month plus our entire episode library. Get access to the BCC Discord. Get discounts on merch. If you want, upgraded the Cosmic Tier and unlock three additional BCC soundtracks by Super Producer Riley. It's all at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. And I think as of last week, we have 229 episodes up over there. And 230th episode is going to drop this Friday. And it all ties yeah. into the history of Bigfoot and Big Harry's Summer this summer. So you got to go check it out, okay? Come All on. right. That's like
2: less than a penny an episode. Come on. Get over there. <laughs> That's I don't
0: understand maybe. that math, but I'm with
1: maybe. you. Maybe. <laughs> Bryce's math is magical. He does magical math. It's magic it's math. Magic That's magic
0: math. alchemy math magic magic right
1: there. Math. <sighs> All right. Math. Are you guys ready to get back into this history of Bigfoot deep dive?
0: Yes. I, I'm ready to whoever this character is that it's coming out of here. Are you going so to talk to Bigfoot?
1: Maybe get to talk to <laughs> Bigfoot tonight? <laughs>
0: This is Strike Mike Goes Deep right here, is who this is.
1: Hi, I'm Stan Lee. I'm the man who invented Bigfoot. Excelsior. <laughs> <laughs> what if Wait I just go off script and no, 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 no. just talk about how <laughs> Stan Lee created Bigfoot? For, as a government, for an as like a government, as like a government black ops. Yeah, like. Did he ever have. Well, he had a
2: couple Bigfoot type characters, but he certainly didn't.
1: Well, Marvel did. He did There right. was Sasquatch in uh, Alpha Flight, and there's Wendigo in. Uh, uh, in Incredible Hulk, but I believe yeah. they were created by Len Wayne and John Byrne, respectively. Okay? But I'm not positive. There you Don't go. quote me All on that. Alright! Right. Well, when we last left off, it was 1957, and a small-town reporter from British Columbia by the name of John Green had been collecting local stories of Sasquatch from around Augustus and Harrison Hot Springs. This was a direct result of the village of Harrison Hot Springs, which Green covered for the local paper discussing a potential Sasquatch hunt to celebrate their centennial. The notion that an actual city government would spend $600 of government grant money to look for a legendary hairy wild man made worldwide news. And Sasquatch, a term coined by a local teacher at the Chihalas Indian Reserve, who published second-hand First Nation stories in a newspaper article, that man whose name was J.W. Burns, was becoming a household name, Sasquatch. And Green was learning that locals believed in the monster. He was also beginning to think that some sort of undiscovered primate was living in the dense forests of North America. He'd been corresponding to eyewitnesses like Albert Ostman, Fred Beck, and William Rowe, who died recently after a sworn affidavit, which is a pity because we didn't get more about his, his story out of him and also because he died, which is sad, and folks uh, that were involved in the Ruby Creek incident that happened back in the early 1940s. All of these tales were being collected as research for Green's Sasquatch file. Another budding believer and soon-to-be well-known Sasquatch hunter was a man named Rene DeHinden. DeHinden had grown up in Switzerland, the ward of a very abusive Swiss farmer who treated him five steps lower than a dog. De Hinden escaped the horrible reality. That's what De, how René De Hinden described it. He escaped the horrible reality of his upbringing. His parents had abandoned him at a very young age by finding solace and comfort in nature. In 1953, he emigrated to Canada. While working on a farm in Alberta, he heard stories on the radio about the hunt for the abominable snowman in Tibet. Expressing his wish to hunt for the Yeti himself, a cheeky coworker told him that he need not travel as far as Nepal. They have hairy monsters in BC! De Hinden answered the sweet siren call of the Sasquatch and packed his bags for British Columbia. Upon arriving in Augustus in 1956, he appeared in Green's newspaper's office asking for tips on how to find Sasquatch. Now, this was right before Green's mind began to change on the subject. He at first took pity on DeHinden, but the two would soon become peers in the search for sassy. Especially when big news was about to come out of California. And the whole Sasquatch thing was about to get upended by the most impressionable people of all time. Americans. Yes. Get ready, Club <laughs> Scouts, because it's time for the History of Bigfoot Part 2. The Bluff Creek Giant. Nice. All right. We're now in August of 1958, 65 years ago, as you listen to this episode. We're in Northern California, just outside the town of Willow Creek. At that moment in time, Willow Creek and surrounding villages of Humboldt County had names like China Flats, Wetch Peck, and Happy Camp, were experiencing a lumber boom that had been going on since 1949. The post-World War II explosion of home building and suburban expansion was still well underway, and lumberjacks working in the forest stretching along Highway 299 north of Eureka, California, were well employed. It wasn't well publicized at the time, but like First Nations people of British Columbia, Northern California's indigenous tribes had stories of hairy wild men in their culture. The Hoopa spoke of creek devils, beings that inhabited the area for centuries. These stories included a legend of a cave inhabited by a large footed tribe. Sometimes the large, hairy, and smelly creatures were referred to as Oma, beings which might have been part material and part spiritual. A being who walked in two dimensions, in other words. Yeah, the Hoopa I like Reserve. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Hoopa Speaking Reserve. Our language here was near Willow Creek. And the surviving members of the tribe residing there since their ancestors were gathered by the military after a militia out of Eureka massacred the Hoopa people in 1860, including women and children during one of their festivals. This area has some horrendously dark history and racism, which unfortunately bleeds into the Bigfoot myth as we go along. Now, some of this, yeah, it's, I, I don't know too, like if you've ever been to No Offense Eureka, Uh, there is sort of like Eureka has like a weird vibe to it, a spooky vibe. I've been through there a couple times. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, I think I was on the road trip with our buddy, Dave Keith. And he was like, I looked up Eureka and there is some real dark history. And and he was talking about this massacre that happened. Like these dudes just went up there and just killed, just committed genocide on the Hoopa tribe. And it's so fucked up and dark. So all that's lingering in the history up there and it's just I don't know it's wild and it's sad. It is kind of sp- weird vibe
0: there, spooky. It's a it's a spooky kind of place. I don't know. There is something yeah. there is
1: a weird energy there. I know what you mean. Yep, I think so too. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Hey, that's why it's America's number one meal kit. Fall is right around the corner, and HelloFresh is here to help you plan for the busy season ahead with tasty delicious dishes delivered to your door simply choose your recipes and pick your delivery date then lay back and enjoy the last days of summer knowing that dinner is covered i always get depressed at the end of summer especially big hairy summer we've we've been having so much fun but you know what you can banish the end of summer blues with HelloFresh. There's no need to stress about how you're going to handle it all this fall, because HelloFresh takes care of the meal planning and delivers pre-portioned ingredients right to your home, so whipping up a homemade meal is a cinch. Look, I know you guys got a lot to do. If you have kids, parents, you, you got back-to-school shopping and planning to do. You know what? Let HelloFresh get the groceries and save you some cash with pre-portioned meals delivered right to your door. Listen, it's Michael here. I'm talking to you straight. Would I lie to you? Never. I eat HelloFresh every week. Have done so for months now. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we get uh, a box delivered to that to to our place, and uh, I'm telling you, this is so fun. It's so easy. I am not a natural in the kitchen, okay? But HelloFresh, these are recipes that even I I can cook, and they you know what? They end up tasting great. Um, uh, There's not been a recipe yet that I can think of where I was like, that's gross. This stuff is all good and it just saves. I love knowing that I don't have to think about what's for dinner, we have options, we can just pick a meal, we can make it, we don't have to order in, we don't have to go out and get food. We save so much money, it's great. So go to HelloFresh.com slash 50BCC and use code 50BCC for 50% off plus free shipping. That's offer code 50BCC for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Now, some of this will sound familiar to those of you who heard BCC 214, A Bigfoot Begins with Markiplier. But there was a lot left on the cutting room floor in that episode. Get ready, y'all, because this is the deep dive. On the morning of August 27, 1958, a logger by the name of Jerry Crew arrived at his job site near Bluff Creek, California. Crew was a cat skinner, a small bulldozer operator for the Granite Logging Company and Wallace Company the former of which was owned by two brothers, Wally Shorty Wallace and Ray Wallace. Bluff Creek was a Wallace company site, and Crew, who by all definitions was a regular American guy and very religious, hopped up in his bulldozer to start work when he looked down and noticed massive human-like footprints set deep in the earth beneath him. Crew stopped the engine, hopped back down to investigate the area, The prints were all over the site, and what was more, some of the equipment had been tampered with. Large drums and a 700-pound tire had been tossed into a gully. Crew gathered the site's foreman, Shorty Wallace, and pointed out the tracks. Crew members all started to gather around, peering at the footprints and swapping ideas over who had vandalized their site. It wasn't the first time that this had happened. One of the crewmen mentioned that similar stories of large man-like prints were found on another Wallace site a few weeks back up near the Mad River. There were also rumors from earlier that summer that strange tracks had been seen up the coast in Trinidad. Shortly, uh, Shorty mentioned that the previous summer, a 450-gallon drum of diesel fuel, sorry, pound drum, of <laughs> 450-pound drum of diesel, not gallons, i would be very big, uh, of diesel fuel had gone missing. <laughs> It, too, had been discovered at the bottom of a gully, and there were large prints in that case as well. Was this just a prank? As we discussed in uh, back in May with amazing guest Kendall Long in BCC 246, Fearsome Creatures, Lumberjacks had a rich history of hazing, pranking, and telling tall tales about monsters living in the woods. But still, maybe something or some thing was visiting logging sites at night and trying to discourage the crews from continuing their work. I mean, looking back today, it's pretty easy to empathize that a creature might see the logging industry as an evil force systematically destroying its home. You spend thousands of years trying to avoid humans and now they're on your turf cutting down your habitat? I'd toss a few barrels too.
2: Most definitely,
0: mm-hmm. yep. I like Bigfoot as an eco-activist. I'm
1: Absolutely. That. Bigfoot, only second to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, two, the five <laughs> biggest eco-activists we've had in our lifetimes. Love it. <laughs> Thank Greta Thunberg. Over the next few right, weeks, the, the crew... Yeah, <laughs> then an actual human being. The crewmen started joking about how they were being visited by an entity they began calling Bigfoot. Two words. Tracks would appear overnight and sometimes get destroyed by the heavy bulldozers at the start of each workday. In early September, a fresh set of tracks appeared along Bluff Creek, and Jerry Crew got a taxidermist friend by the name of Bob Titmus to come out and take some plaster casts of the prints. Because apparently, uh, the tracings that uh, Jerry Crew was trying to do with paper weren't very good, and Bob Titmus was like, "You got to put some plaster in those casts. That's how you do it." Some so Paris he came out, plaster. Yes, yeah, sir. Wow. showed him how to do it. According to John Green.
2: Prints were like those of
1: flat footed human, but huge. They
2: measured 16 inches long and 7 inches wide at the ball of the foot. Average stride was over 4 feet. All were made by the same individual. Most of the prints would be obliterated when the machine started to work in the morning, but every few days, a new
1: set would be there. Bob Timmons didn't see the rationale for the tracks being a prank, but no one knew what was behind them bears and human wild men were the number one suspects one of my favorite theories was that the man responsible was a big-footed swedish lumberjack running amok far out (laughs) theories look to the stories of the bryce lemurians that were said to live under mount shasta to the southeast and and on top of mount shasta i think and in mount shasta Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. the tracks were left behind by some sort of ancient Lemurian master of the mystic arts and sciences. One less tasteful theory kicked around was that they had been left by a large Native American who had been abandoned in the woods as a child due to an intellectual disability. But they didn't use those modern terms when they were talking about it. I would imagine
0: they did not.
1: A journalist from the Humboldt Times named Betty Allen, a resident of Willow Creek, interviewed the loggers about their nocturnal visitor, and they shared tales of missing or upturned equipment, hound dogs that caught the whiff of something, ran into the woods, and never returned. Hell, anything that went upside down or sideways on the site, like the fearsome creatures that preceded him, Bigfoot was responsible. He was a mischief maker whose mark was the unsuspecting lumberjack. According to Betty Allen, A lot of the tales were quite fictitious. They had a legendary quality to them. One of the most important architects of Bigfoot's identity was Andrew Gonzoli, a colleague of Betty Allen's. Gonzoli wrote a column for the Humboldt Times that focused on local history and wildlife with a healthy dose of nostalgia. Gonzoli was at first dismissive about the mystery monster when he was contacted by sailor resident Carole, or Carolee Bemis about all, the, about all the fresh tracks being found in early September. Carolee and her husband Jess were among the first amateur track hunters who basically approached the phenomenon as a fun pastime. And while they loved to gossip about the latest monster rumors, neither she nor Jess took it too seriously. But on September 21st, Gonzoli needed something to print. He finally succumbed to the charm everyone else is falling under and wrote about Willow Creek's Big Man on Campus.
0: Maybe we have a relative of the abominable snowman in the Himalayas. Our own wandering Willie of
1: the Witch pick. Soon after, a photograph of Cruz Plaster cast that Titmus had appeared made appeared in the Humboldt Times, under a headline reading, Huge Footprints! Hold Mystery of Friendly Bluff Creek Giant. As it happened with Sasquatch in British Columbia, the arrival of Bigfoot made global news. Reporters from the New York Times to LA Times to San Francisco Chronicle and the Examiner and more descended upon Willow Creek. The game show Truth or Consequences offered a $1,000 prize to the person who could come forth and explain the source of the tracks. Gonzoli claimed to have received over two thousand and five hundred letters during that time from inquisitive minds around the world all wondering the same question that gonzoli had put forth in the humble times which was are the tracks a human hoax or are
0: they the actual marks of a huge but harmless wild man traveling through the wilderness can the tracks be some legendary sized animal?
1: American audiences especially loved the idea that they might have an abominable snowman of their own. And Gonzoli helped cement its place in American folklore by truncating the two-worded Bigfoot down to just Bigfoot. Suddenly, the monster was taking on a cartoonishly approachable demeanor. The friendliness of Bigfoot may be attributed to the way Gonzoli wrote about him in these early stories. The men
0: are convinced they are being watched. However, they believe it is not unfriendly watching. Nearly every new piece of work finds tracks on it the next morning as if the thing had a supervisory interest in the
1: project. Now, I think it's at this moment, the first formative weeks of the Bigfoot phenomenon that the idea of Bigfoot being a singular personality roaming the woods really started to take hold in the general American mind. After all, the mm-hmm. old-timey stories of eight men living in the woods were still lost to time or forgotten. Yes, Green had been collecting those in British Columbia, but they really hadn't been reported on or collected much in Northern California. They existed, people just didn't know about them. And all, there, there's this, um, you know, you have Yeti, who was a singular monster, so it stood to reason that the American version of Yeti, Bigfoot, was singular as well. Already at the very beginning, the folksy, fun version of Bigfoot, which was highly marketable to consumers, was distracting from the idea that John Green was developing that there could be some sort of undiscovered primate native to North America. In other words, you kind of had to know the lore to see the bigger picture. And most people didn't, and they never would, because most people, unlike us, weren't actually going to research this topic. Now, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit here, but the people who did end up researching it sort of <laughs> fell into it, like Green, or sought it out because they were looking for a purpose, like De Hinden. From its birth, the Bigfoot world attracted nerds, loners, and grown men prone to fantasy. It is very similar to what has already had already been taking place in the UFO world. When the mainstream scientific community refuses to take these subjects seriously, or the government suppresses information, as was certainly happening in the UFO realm at the time, then the field is pretty much left open to people who want to volunteer to figure out what the hell is going on. That's how UFOs got your Kenneth Arnolds and your Grey Barkers early on, and that's how Bigfoot got John Green, Renee DeHinden, Bob Titmuss, and Ivan T. Sanderson, who we're going to get to shortly. It was yeah, like per- the very, perfect place
2: for guys like us. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, exa- bad- no, <laughs> this, yes, mm-hmm. this is a badge of honor it's, in my eyes. <laughs> it is, exactly. but
1: it is also sort of like, Hey, if no one else is going to do it, let's just like people with everyday jobs, people who are like reporters or taxidermists are going to look into it. Right. I mean, Bryce, sure. it honestly is like the very early days of Hollywood when, Uh, you could just literally walk up to a barn that was shooting in a production in 1906 and just ask if they need help and suddenly you'd be working on a movie set. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Because they needed bodies. They needed bodies. (laughs) Yes, and then suddenly you call yourself a filmmaker or an actor and then you are a pioneer and one of the founding fathers of an industry and some of those people that wandered up to these barns went on to become like the Warner Brothers and became like, you know, massive (laughs) studios. CEOs. It's crazy. Yeah, You know, so the guys who showed up on the scene in the original Bigfoot days around Willow Creek went on to become the quote-unquote experts. And there were pluses and minuses to that, because as you'll soon see, ultimately, nobody knew what the fuck they were doing.
0: (laughs) Not surprising.
1: Hey, Club Scouts. It's your BCC boy, Michael, here. And you know what? Signing your life away to a big wireless provider is kind of like... Well, it's kind of like being trapped on a roller coaster from hell. Sure, it looked fun at first. They probably threw in a free phone, but now you can't get off. That roller coaster's going straight to hell. And you're going along with it month after month of insane bills and unexpected overages and surprise fees. But that sounds like your current big wireless plan. It's time to get off that ride and get on a Mint Mobile. For a limited time wireless plans from mint mobile are just 15 dollars a month that's unlimited talk text and data for just 15 dollars a month guys you know how we're all stuck with cell phones we all got to carry them and these prices i'm telling you they're getting worse and worse do i sound like an old man sure but i feel like an old man because i'm getting gouged by these big wireless companies it sucks how much we have to pay for these bills and you know what that's why I'm jumping on the Mint Mobile wagon. That's right. I'm signing up for Mint Mobile because I only want to pay 15 bucks a month for my bill. And guess what? You can say goodbye to your big wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Here's the best part. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan, and you can bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. It's so easy to switch over. So ditch Big Wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get a premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com bcc. That's mintmobile.com bcc. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com BCC. So finally, in October of 1958, there was an actual sighting reported. A man named George Smith was driving down Bluff Creek Road when he spotted an eight-foot-tall, broad-shoulder, hairy monster lumbering out of the woods. Smith was terrified but he also remained skeptical saying that the fur the, the, the on the creature sagged like a poorly tailored suit leading him to think that maybe it had just been an, a man in a gorilla costume trying to play a prank yeah an 8 foot tall man wandering around these roads by the way too i, I should note like these were not developed roads these were old like gravel roads right. that were barely in developed the middle of nowhere. that were yeah, you mm-hmm. were really hard, and still today, some of these Bluff Creek is very difficult. Bryce, you've gotten—I mean, how long does it take to get to Bluff Creek from Willow Creek?
2: Oh my God, it's a trek. It's the first of all, you can't get there by car. I mean, there's a road that leads to the logging road, and then from there, it's about an hour hike down, uh, sort of a treacherous hike. So these are these are not places where just uh, interlopers roam. You know?
1: Yeah. Betty Allen divided locals into two categories, the confirmed and the converted. The confirmed were those who believed that the whole thing was just a hoax or a fun prank, or could otherwise be easily explained. The converted were those who began in the confirmed camp, but after examining the evidence, found themselves crossing over into the realm of the unexplained. Betty considered herself to be one of the converted. If those tracks are the work of a prankster, he's an artist. I looked down on at least 20 of the tracks that had been made, and they were just as perfect as those made by anyone else walking around the road. You could see the toes and the rest of the foot very plainly. There was no exaggeration to be found that I could see. Jerry Crew and Bob Titmuss were also members of the converted. Crew's religious beliefs pushed him to theorize that Bigfoot was sent by God. To remind humankind that they didn't know everything about science, quoting Paul's epistle to the Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they became fool and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. In Crew's mind, if Bigfoot was real, it would challenge everything secular science had been saying about evolution. God in play by science's rules, he could create anything he wanted to, anywhere, <laughs> anytime. In modern terms, Bigfoot was God trolling Charles Darwin.
0: <laughs> Love that. That's one theory.
1: I do what I want. <laughs> yeah. I make what I want yeah. when I want. I'm God. I put it where I'll I want. I'll make an ape man. <laughs> I'll make an ape man. He'll push a 700-pound tire down your gully. I don't care. Yeah. It sounds like Suck a dare. It, you dare me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's
1: like, well, God, can't you just like put Bigfoot in the middle of Times Square if that's the plan? Why would I do that? Too on the nose. Too obvious. I work in a mysterious way. It's
0: for the thinking man. (laughs) It really is. It's for the thinking man. It's a little showmanship.
1: Yeah. The idea that Bigfoot was a prank or a hoax is one that obviously still persists today. Fake tracks had been found around Willow Creek during the period and at this period and it's impossible to think that there weren't pranksters who would jump on the bandwagon and start making fake prints. No argument there. But the fake prints didn't mean there weren't also real prints like the ones Betty Allen was referring to. However, it didn't help that the it didn't help the converted's case that Willow Creek was dealing with a major prankster in their midst, none other than Ray Wallace, Shorty's mm. brother and co-owner of the Wallace Company, the very company that Jerry Crew was working for when he found tracks on their site in late August. Damn. In October of 1958, another newspaper called the Blue Lake Advocate ran a story with the headline "Bigfoot Tracks Reported a Hoax." This story was in response to the Blue Lake's elderly community expressing concern about their safety. They were old people worried about a monster that was going (laughs) to come after them. So Blue Lake was like, the advocate was like, let's make sure we can calm everybody down. Let's get to the bottom of this. Someone had allegedly leaked to the Blue Advocate that the tracks discovered by Jerry Crew had been fake and that the whole prank had gotten out of hand. The sheriff's department wanted to meet with the individual because they were concerned about growing monster posses that were armed with rifles tromping through the woods and didn't want anyone to get shot. But before they could, the humble times, the feisty little humble times, I love these guys, discovered the identity of the alleged prankster, and that was Ray Wallace. Ray refused to meet with authorities and denied the claims that he had faked the original prints. In fact, he couldn't have made them because he wasn't anywhere near the worksite that morning. I'm going to sue him for slander. I won't fool around about it either. I thought they
2: were bear tracks
1: and I still do. Ray Wallace claimed that the whole Bigfoot thing was bad for business. His workers were scared to show up for work and he was losing money. I wish they'd let it die down. The afternoon of the day that the Humboldt Times published his story <laughs> published that story uh, titled Sheriff's Office Ends Up with Bigfoot in Mouth, which connected Ray to the hoax story, two of his employees, Ray Kerr and Leslie Brezel, had a press conference claiming that they'd seen Bigfoot crossing the road Sunday night. When the Humboldt Times contacted Shorty and Ray Wallace to comment on this story, Ray started changing his story. Suddenly, he no longer thought the tracks were made from a bear, but by something unexplained. Was Ray becoming one of the converted? Or was he just, as Joshua Bluebus puts it in his book, Bigfoot, The Life and Times of a Legend, improvising making up a story as he went along taking advantage of the newspaper's eagerness to publish new and exciting revelations about bigfoot wallace was playing a game that pt barnum had perfected a century before mixing the real and unreal telling obviously contradictory tales anything to keep the story going and himself in the limelight further tainting wallace's reputation well get a load of this bryce According to authors Daniel Lockson and Donald R. Prothero in their book Abominable Science, it was after Wallace's death in 2002, his family admitted that he'd faked tracks around Buff Creek and presented the wooden feet that he'd used to make them. Even cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman accedes that Wallace was not to be fully trusted. Yes, Wallace appears to have placed prank footprints near his work sites from 1958 through the 1960s. Ray Wallace lived a life of hoaxing, stretching the truth and pranks. It was happening before Bluff Creek, 1958, and after.
2: Yeah, well, I, I just those... want to say, I wanna I wanna just yep. jump in here. They they were called well, stomp Stompers is what they called these things, these sort of wooden carved out huge feet that had like a strap on them. And they were very crude and 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 listen. These things, you know, did not leave any room for improvise in tracks. They were just these, these just crude wooden things. And, you know, I've tried walking around on these things and they're quite difficult to make like a track. And so the idea that somebody could just like, you know, uh, meander around a work site in the middle of the night and make all these tracks, it's just so preposterous, you know?
1: Well, uh, one of those after moments that that Lauren Coleman was talking about came in 1960 when Wallace claimed to have captured Bigfoot, which ate a steady diet of (laughs) cornflakes. Wallace offered to sell the creature for $1 million, only to release him back to the wild after negotiations dragged on. Wallace Wallace would (laughs) would spend the next few decades spinning tall tales about his budding friendship with Bigfoot. Bigfoot used to be
2: very tame, that's right. I've seen him almost every morning on my way to work. I would sit in my pickup and toss apples out of the window to him. He never did catch an apple though. (laughs) I'm sure he tried.
1: Wallace had been called Bigfootery's dirty little secret, whose antics are often glossed over or left out of the larger narrative. Even John Green fails to mention him at all in Sasquatch, the Apes Among Us clearly he's an embarrassment and stuff like these wooden tracks all these plank stuff it really like dilutes the whole thing especially if you're trying to prove that this thing is real it's a hard pill to swallow that the tracks jerry crew discovered on the wallace worksite on august 28 1958 might not have even been real tracks but a little hoaxing wouldn't stop Green on his quest to prove that a mystery primate was living in the Pacific Northwest. God.
2: It's like the thorn in the side of this Bigfoot phenomenon. Yeah. is just some douchebag who's like, who's like I made all the tracks and then I talked to him in the morning and I've captured one and it's just like and it's just like, that's what the media clamors onto. It's the same thing with this Patterson Gimlin film where the, the, the guy who said he was the, I'm the one that wore the outfit. You right. know what I mean? That's, there's always mm-hmm. just some, you know, douchebag that just takes away the real spotlight from the real phenomenon that is taking place. Yeah,
0: it's, you know, where Ray Wallace belongs.
2: Yeah, he's in the in we belong right bucket. in the fuck you bucket. Yeah,
1: there you go.
2: That's Run where you go. I mean, chair. fuck you, Ray. <laughs> I
1: showed you guys a picture of him, and he does look very fun. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he's got right, a twinkle right. in his eye. He's anyway, a little jokester. It's just the same thing, though. I think with like people like Gray Barker and the Men in Black stuff, like it doesn't mean that the Men in Black stuff wasn't happening or flying saucers weren't happening, but there were people who liked to plus it up a little bit and play pranks on their friends who might be a little susceptible to men in black suits showing up and harassing them. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, there's, there, there's always a little bit of antisocial behavior around these phenomenons because people want attention and people want to, you know, people like seeing people get freaked out. There's a Joker element to this stuff. There's the cosmic trickster, mm-hmm. but then there's also the regular human tricksters that get involved with this stuff because they love attention and they love creating chaos. That's true. All the while Bigfoot was making his grand debut in Northern California, John Green was watching the story unfold from British Columbia. He'd seen the photo of Jerry Cruz and Bob Titmuss' plaster cast from the Humboldt Times, which had been covered in a Vancouver paper. By this point, Green had been gathering stories for his Sasquatch file for over a year and wondered if some hoaxer down in California was ripping off his hard work. Oh, and by the way, the Harrison Hot Springs hunt that kicked off the whole Sasquatch renaissance? It never happened. The town council oh. decided to spend the $600 on a new furnace for the community center.
0: <laughs> I mean honestly that was probably a good choice. Yeah, yes. money well That's spent. True. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But Green, who was well beyond a convert at this point, was too enticed by all the activity taking place around Willow Creek. So in November of 1958, he drove down to California for his first Bigfoot hunt. DeHinden had wanted to join him, but he was not yet a Canadian citizen and therefore couldn't cross into the U.S. Green was instead accompanied by his wife and a colleague for a harrowing backroads adventure through the wilds of California.
2: On that trip, there were only a few tracks to be seen. All the more recent ones had been wiped out just before we got there. Looking at them was quite looking at them was quite an experience. I realized that in spite of having taken a 2,000 mile trip just to see them for myself, deep down I had never expected that there would be anything to see. Fortunately, my wife was with me. She might not have found it to be so understanding over the years had she not seen the tracks herself.
1: Green met with Jerry Crew and Bob Titmus and compared notes. Titmus reiterated to Green that he thought the tracks he'd studied had not been faked. And I think it's important to note that the plaster cast that was in that Vancouver, or was in the Humble Times, and in the Vancouver paper, was not taken from the from the Wallace worksite. That was a track that Jerry Crew and Titmus had found after that. At any rate. The whole thing was eerily similar to the stories told to Green by S.E. Tifting about the tracks discovered at the Chapman cabin back up in Ruby Creek in 1941. In fact, the tracing of the Ruby Creek track that Green had brought with him matched the Bluff Creek prints exactly. How would a hoaxer know how to do that? The humble times covered Green's investigation. When asked if Bigfoot might be a relative of old Sasquatch. Green proposed that no, they were one and the same. Bigfoot was a member of Green's undiscovered North American primate species. Green recalled that meeting up with Titmus was the most important thing that he'd done on that trip. A few weeks after that, he returned. To, uh, a few weeks after he had returned to BC, Titmus called him to let him know that he and a friend named Ed Patrick had discovered fresh tracks on a sandbar in Bluff Creek. Green made a hasty trip back down to California to meet with Bob and look at the tracks. These notably were different from the original Bigfoot tracks, possibly alluding to more than one creature who was present in the area. The new
2: track was an inch shorter than the original Bigfoot and considerably less like a human track. The original track could conceivably have been that of an enormous human with a very wide foot and fallen arches. Now, the new track had shorter toes and what appeared to be the ball of the foot had a deep split on the outer edge and partway across it making a sort of double ball. What was really impressive, however, was the depth of the track.
1: Now Bryce, you you did, I think you started to earlier, but remind our Club Scouts why depth is so important.
2: Well, yeah, because that alludes to the weight of of whatever creature is making these tracks. And as, as a matter of fact... I'm, I don't want to, like, you know, get ahead of your story or anything, but, uh, you know, Bob Gimlin, uh, who was one of the the guys who filmed the famous PGF film, uh, he said after the tracks had been made that he went back uh, to see how deep those tracks were. And he got on his horse, uh, which I'm not, this is going to be me guessing a man in the weight of a horse. I think you've done uh, this before. At 3, least 200 pounds. pounds? Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I would say at least like 600 pounds, right? A man and a horse. I, hopefully that sounds about right. But he's, More? anyway, Let's Bob see. Gimlin was like, you know, uh, me and the um, on top of my horse did not uh, go deep into I, that wet, soft sand as as that. Your track. average
0: horse is 1,500, 2, yeah, pounds. It's Damn.
1: Okay. Yeah. Wow, I think that's that, um, I think Green in Sasquatch, the Apes Among Us talks about how, like, some of the tracks they examined, it would take someone at least eight, it was like 800 and 900 pounds of pressure to make the depth of these tracks, that there was just, like, mm. no comparison, you know. We'll take his right. word for it. Um, uh, he, Green actually said about these tracks, Bryce, read this quote uh, from Green. Something had made the tracks. And it had to be either a man with a machine or an
2: animal. Both explanations were ridiculous.
1: Unexplicable. (laughs) (laughs) These (laughs) explanations are ridiculous. Brutalize
2: that. Uh, sorry, I was lost no, in the story point, of my my horse math.
1: <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, but no, but the, <laughs> that blockable horse math. Ball, horse math. Podcast. <laughs> but it, he has a point. He's like, so the weight is so heavy that it's gonna take a machine or something. Like maybe you put a maybe you put a you know a, a, tr- a, a one of those wooden feet on something that can like put a lot of pressure on there. Why would you do that? And then, secondly, yeah, you know, if an animal made it, it's it's a it's a regular animal made it. It would be ridiculous. So, I don't, yeah, you well, know if, this yeah, is... if
2: you're gonna haul a machine in there, you're gonna see the tracks of the person hauling in the machine. Yes, you know,
1: I, I will say though, I also believe reading this book that John Green is determined to make his case. And I do think that there's a healthy dose of denialism that comes along with this. And that's me yeah, just, I've you know, that. that's a little bit of my armchair psychology <laughs> here. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of Bigfoot people do uh, ourselves included, maybe not Riley so much, but it is sort of interesting to be, I'm like, well, this is just ridiculous. Um, yeah. so In 1959, an elite group of budding Bigfooters was assembled by a rich oil man from San Antonio named Tom Slick to hunt for Bigfoot. He called the project the Pacific Northwest Expedition. The group consisted of John Green, Renee DeHinden, now a Canadian citizen, therefore able to travel to the U.S., Bob Titmus, Titmus' friend Ed Patrick, and British biologist Ivan T. Sanderson, who would go on to write the book on the Yeti, The Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, in 1961. If Tom Slick, the perfect name for a rich Texas oil man, by the way, sounds familiar, uh-huh. it's because... He had funded similar expeditions to find the abominable snowman throughout the 1950s. Here's what I wrote about Slick back in BCC 151, and I think it bears repeating. He was well-educated edu- well at, at, well edu- at Exeter and Princeton. Yeah. Slick was well-connected and rich. He had been part of a group of concerned internationalists that regularly gathered to discuss world topics, which included Jimmy Stewart, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Albert Schweitzer, Winston Churchill, and John Foster Dulles. Not only was he a rancher, oilman and founder of Slick Airways and friend of Howard Hughes, he was a moderate republican who rallied against American isolationism and exceptionalism, believed that the America that America and the communist bloc should team up to create a world police that would prevent wars. He also He's advocated there. for denuclearization. Generally speaking that he was uh, he was a big time advocate for world peace and the advancement of science. He thought that the scientific community was too cautious and believed that they should be digging deeper into the great mysteries of the world. Now I want him back for you, didn't I, Bryce? It was yeah, also speculated that it was also speculated that Slick had CIA ties and that the expeditions he funded to Nepal were used as covers to spy on Russia. While this description is fascinating, it's also worth mentioning that anthropologist Carlton Kuhn, who worked with the U.S. Air Force, once told Life magazine that Slick was a well meaning man and nice guy, but he had no clue what he was doing in Nepal and was inadequately prepared for that venture. And when you (laughs) that sounds
0: about right.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's an eccentric boy. who he is just like, like a, well, this is going to yeah. be fun. <laughs> and when you yeah. read what John Green had to say about the Pacific Northwest Expedition in 1959, it sounded like a real clusterfuck.
2: Looking back, it should have been obvious that things were going to be a little strange. Tom was accustomed to being in charge of whatever and whoever he paid for. The title of the expedition was his idea, and he was going to be the leader of it. As a result, there was a protracted negotiating session in the lobby of a motel in Willow Creek. One of the most active participants was a man who accompanied Tom. We found out afterwards that he was not an associate, but he had met Tom by appointment to talk about a mine or something. An elderly lady knitting in the corner of the lobby also put in a few words from time to time. Like I said, shit this
1: show. is straight. <laughs> this is straight out of Twin Peaks. This is like a scene really out, out of like the Great Northern Hotel business meeting. I totally. love that they were just sitting, me yeah. like, "Wait, this guy isn't with you. What is he? Doing? Why is he here in this bitch meeting? He was just some dude that wanted to talk to him about selling a mine." And an old lady so, and in The lady from the knitting was
2: like, "I hear he can only be killed with an ice bullet." <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you,
1: Marge. <laughs> we'll take that into consideration. Almost immediately, everyone started arguing about the hunt. Nobody agreed on the best way to go about finding a relic hominid. Tom Slick wanted to shoot and kill Bigfoot, which the others did not. Slick hired hunters and hounds to accompany them in the field, which Green, argued, would alert any creatures to their presence. Renee DeHinden, who was increasingly annoyed with Slick, quit days into the venture after being crammed into the back of a truck with multiple hound dogs while a random hunter canoodled with his new bride in the cab. Bob Timmis, Timmis, the taxidermist, rarely rarely showed up in the field. And Green saw Slick give away their dwindling funds to other Bigfoot hunters that he thought was for sure conning him. The expedition, which Green initially thought might last a few months, dragged on for years without much to show for it.
2: The Pacific Northwest expedition didn't disturb Bigfoot or his friend any, but it taught all of us some useful things. One of which was that the average Sasquatch hunter is so pig-headed that two of them together are pretty sure to have a falling out before he long.
1: But despite the arguing, Green said that the expedition was actually kind of fun why wouldn't it be it's a bunch of nerds (laughs) tromping around in the woods on someone else's dime, looking for a monster
2: a tradition that still goes on today these were
1: the the first guys and they set the tone forever
2: they really did yeah Yeah, even slick who
1: who would dip in and out of of willow creek saw the whole venture as a way to play hooky from being a wealthy businessman
2: tom got a tremendous kick out of bigfoot hunting Once he and I made a short sweep around camp while Bob was booking supper. Uh, Maybe cooking supper, actually. Uh, We had been driven in, and there wasn't much chance of any animal hanging around. But Tom clutched his rifle at his ready and said to me, Boy, we're hunting the biggest game in
1: the world.
0: He's just like a little boy with so much money. (laughs) Yeah, yes. He's like, we're going to make world
1: peace and find Bigfoot. (laughs) Yes. A nice set of tracks were discovered by Green in the spring of 1960 along a sandbar in Bluff Creek. They were 14 inches long and more narrow than the previous tracks that they'd found and included the split in the ball of the foot. The size and shape could indicate that they were perhaps, and this is me speculating here, produced by a smaller Bigfoot, maybe a female. But sadly, all of the evidence gathered was taken back to San Antonio by Tom Slick. Slick died in October of 1962, and all the materials gathered during the expedition never surfaced again. Tracks didn't add up to much anyway. Man-made or a prank as a prank or produced by an undiscovered animal, it didn't matter. What the world needed to see was a physical specimen. And by the end of the 1960s, the world would get a glimpse at what might be an actual Sasquatch trotting along 954 frames of film. We'll get into that next week in the history of Bigfoot part three.
2: Can't wait. Mm -hmm. Well done, Michael. Well Mm -hmm. done, sir.
1: Bryce, I, I had a lazy bit of research that I wanted to ask you about. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. The split heel thing across the ball of the foot. Have you heard that term?
2: I, the split heel, no, but you know, um Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who's sort of the foremost uh, scientist on the on the subject of Bigfoot, who wrote, uh who wrote that great book? Uh, the Sci- I think what what is it? The science of Bigfoot. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he was noted for discovering in these in, in a lot of these tracks the metatarsal ridge break, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's referring to the same Got thing. It. Okay, um, and I'll, he also you I'll know, look into and, it for and, next. This week. is a guy who was. At, yeah, I'm not sure what the split heel thing is. It might be alluding to that uh, to that metatarsal break, but and, and you know, I'm not a. a and a, an anatomy guy. I can't really explain that, but it's sort of how uh, how it goes up. And it, yeah, I'm not even going to attempt it. Uh, well, just a fine. simple we'll horse at, mathematician. Th- you know, I think that was yeah. yeah. <laughs> just a we should be asking you questions horse, about horse, ma- horse math, math. Man. <laughs> Oh my God! I'm I'm not helping Bigfoot's case tonight. I tell You're you doing, that. Yes, much. sure I mean, you are. You're doing, I'm doing
1: him wrong. I'm doing you wrong. <laughs> you know what? You've been helping him every every episode. Don't you worry about it. That's but right, but there you go, Riley. Where are you at with this right now? You you started off as our as our layman. Where are you at? I mean, I,
0: I I I feel that I understand the the history better. I feel like I see what laid the foundation for this very podcast of uh nerds trying to figure Seriously. it out. Yeah, Eccentric right. nerds. Um, I, Um You know, I I don't think it's really convinced me one way or the other. You are really, you're, you're, you're edginess to that 954 frames of film that I'm excited to be discussed <laughs> next told week. Yeah, he's a a big big put put what do
2: you, do you expect?
0: That. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Something, you know, we got that climax. I told you the climax wasn't coming tonight.
0: But what oh, really okay. strikes me overall is just these characters are all so good. Yeah. Like, they are
2: Yeah, it's great.
0: I just can see all of these kooky dudes and I just, mean, and you know, it, it's I get it.
2: it's you're, a tradition that like we talked about, still today in the Bigfoot hunting world, that's exactly what you're gonna find is just <laughs> yeah. this just this cornucopia of wonderful characters, just, you know what yeah, I mean? Eccentric. Our, ourselves included.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I I love it. I'm I'm loving this world that you're weaving.
1: Well, it's only going to get richer, I I believe. So um, listen, everybody, Uh, we love you. Uh, Follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. If you do, uh, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We might read it on the air. I didn't pull one for Riley, so I'm just going to pull one right here, fresh. This is a pretty long one. It's a deep dive one. You want to read this one, Riley? It's the first one that pops up.
0: Oh, that one's like paragraphs long,
1: right? Yeah, you know what? it's a deep dive episode let's do a deep let's do a deep dive five-star review fuck it
2: okay uh yep i'm i'm getting there while you're finding it i can do some horse math for you yeah now, let's give us give us if some horse you're math, a double bro. man on a horseback you're running at about 2200 pounds you add some trail packing gear that's going to put you at about 43 now on a snowy day that's going to dissipate the average weight by about 15%, and that's going to put you right in the realm of about 3,600 pounds, and that's a horse walking through snow. Wow. Very good. And that's just simple horse math. All right. Okay. You want, you
0: want the big boy?
2: I'll give you the big boy.
0: Five star. I love this podcast show. Great open. I listen to it every day I work, and it gets me through the day. I have a story that's not mine. My aunt told me this a couple of years ago, and she swears it's true. <laughs>
1: There's an L in a review.
0: <laughs>
2: wait a minute. On a review, somebody wrote a story of high strangeness tell, It's supposed like page, to be it's pages, <laughs> But
0: we're going for it. I haven't read this one yet. We live in Salt Lake City, uh, but I didn't know where she went to do this. She said she went up around late teen years with her friend. We will call her Jimmy. Her and Jimmy wanted to go sunbathing up in the mountains. She knew a spot with a big flat rock that had a lot of sunlight. It was a bit of a hike, so they had to leave the car at the side of the road. They hiked for maybe an hour and a half. They finally got there and laid in the sun. An hour goes by. They're talking and living life, and they smell this god-awful odor. She couldn't explain to me what it was, but it was really bad. Then she felt her hair raise. She told me she felt like someone or something was watching her, and she tells Jimmy, and he says, it's probably a bear, let's go before we disturb it. As they got up, she turns and sees something behind a rock, staring at her, crouching. She said it was about 15, maybe 20 feet away. She said she could remember what it looked like. She said the animal had dark, almost black pupils. She said it was a dark chocolate brown fur, and she said his face looked like leather from a belt. She was terrified, trying to tap Jimmy on the shoulder. He looked in horror. Then he stood up, and that's when she really felt fear. She said it looked around nine feet tall. They slowly started walking away from this thing. She said she already knew what it was, but was no bear. She'd heard the legend of Bigfoot, but was not a believer. She didn't know what to do. They hid behind the rocks they were laying on, and it was a tight fit between them two rocks, so they felt safe. There was a big hill in front of them, they look over, and the Bigfoot was gone, so they thought the coast was clear. But as they got up to leave, they hear this scream, almost whooping sound, and heard two more far away. Then it stood pacing in front of them, just pacing. She said they were sobbing, thinking the worst. She said it was as if it was waiting for them to do something. She said it was getting dark, and it was still there waiting. They finally decided to call the police. It was dark, and they didn't see the creature anymore, but they weren't taking any chances. The police finally show up. And they think the two teens are on drugs. Uh, They do a bunch of alcohol and drug tests but find nothing. And took them down and gave them a warning. But I don't know what kind of warning that would be. She said no one but my mom believed me. She said those eyes haunted her in her dreams for years. And that's my Bigfoot story for Big Harry Summer. Hope you enjoyed. Tell me your guy's opinion. From Sticky rice, one seventeen.
2: Uh, Sticky rice, yeah, five stars good for you. Great Man. five stars. Five stars to that
0: review is what I five think. Five stars. If I think saw a Bigfoot
2: story. Be sure to leave them on Apple review. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, let's get put them in there. Let's get
0: these reviews unhinged, you guys. Yes, yes please. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell
1: you my opinion. She saw Bigfoot. What else do you need to know? Sounds like yeah. It. All right, we're Mm going to kick the Patreon shout-outs down one week. We love you, Patreons. Thank you so much. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and threads at Bigfoot Collectors Club and on TikTok at Pod. Write to us at Bigfoot Collectors Club at gmail.com. That live show, it's coming up Thursday, August 24th, 7.30pm 2-Bit Circus downtown Los Angeles or live stream if you're not in California or Los Angeles at popsylounge.com at 7.30pm. PST, buy those tickets. Uh, Links are in the show notes of this episode or in our link tree on our instagram at bigfoot collectors club no excuses come to our show it's Bigfoot's 65th birthday bash
2: yeah that's it hey i got another announcement too i know you've been uh getting getting a lot of questions about when season four of expedition bigfoot is going to air our season filmed in alaska well the time has come set your calendar dates august 30th we will be airing on the Discovery Channel. So uh, look for us there.
1: And I believe it's okay to plug this show because it's not... Under the same contract that we're striking, uh, that's right. Over. I called. I called my union office
2: and uh, and directly asked them. And so as long Great. as it's not under the uh, standard union contract, I, we are allowed to Great. do that. So. I just want right to clarify
1: on. for everybody that you're yeah. in the that's clear. Right. Nobody's uncomfortably like, is yeah. This okay? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All good. Riley, it what do you got? Okay.
0: And Bryce, we're so stoked for you. Yeah, that's buddy, so awesome.
1: Can't wait. Very excited. Cannot I'm, wait.
0: I'm uh, you know, I'm I'm Peace Drone on uh, Instagram and. You can book me for a cameo, and I'll sing you a song. They've been coming in lately. I really enjoy doing it. So, uh, you know, book yourself a cover for a birthday, anniversary, or just for fun.
1: There you go. All right. We're crossing over to the other side for a History of Bigfoot sidetrack episode, a bit of history that we didn't make it into the overall series. If we don't see you there, we'll see you back here next week for an all-new episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club. Until then, good night. And go get regressed! Ha <laughs> It's a little bit of George Bush. Ray Wallace, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot Collectors Club is executive produced by Michael McMillan, Riley Bray, and Bryce Johnson. Our show is engineered, produced, and scored by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters. Follow them on Spotify. Want more BCC? For exclusive full-length episodes every month and total access to The Other Side. Check out patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club.
1: Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people.